On the balance sheet of life, knowing Christ is priceless, everything else is worthless in comparison. Genuine righteousness is gifted by God through faith, not earned by man through works. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us, and now, here's Brad Hannock. Please turn to Philippians chapter 3. The context on this, Paul's been in prison for about four years. Two years in Caesarea, two years in Rome. The church at Philippi has not seen him in probably more like five years, and they're quite concerned about him. They've heard he's been in prison, but they really don't know a lot about him. So they sent Epaphroditus, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. They sent him from Philippi to Rome about 800 miles to check on him and find out how he's doing, and they bring him a financial gift. Paul has not worked, obviously, in a number of years, so he needs the support. Epaphroditus almost dies in Rome, either from overwork or close to martyrdom. And Paul is planning on sending him back to the church at Philippi with this letter. So Paul wrote this letter, and the courier was going to be Epaphroditus to bring the letter back to the church there. And as you recall, the last couple of weeks, Paul's been talking about the necessity of humility. Humility produces unity, and Christ being the, obviously the epitome of living a humble lifestyle and sacrificing his life for others, and then he is the example that we should follow. He then gives us a couple of human examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus of people who have laid down their lives for the gospel on a day-by-day basis. So the ultimate goal now we're going to talk about today in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, is the supreme value of knowing Christ personally, to have a growing personal relationship with Christ himself is the ultimate Christian Uh, goal of the Christian life. So if you turn to chapter 3, verse 1, let's pick up the narrative in verse 1. Paul says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless." Here's the principle. I'm going to repeat it a couple times so you can get it. Number one, God hates self-righteousness because proud people believe that a right relationship with God can be purchased by human effort. Let's say that again. God hates self-righteousness because proud people believe that a right relationship with God can be purchased by human effort. By the way, if you don't get it all, that's fine. It'll be on the website. Crystal will put that out um, within the next day or two. 
So he says, finally, my brethren, it's not that he's coming to a conclusion of the epistle. That's going to be a, a several couple ch- chapter away, but he's, he's introducing a new topic. He says, my brethren, a term of endearment, he says, rejoice. I want you to know this command to rejoice is not a suggestion. It's a command. He says, rejoice. But he doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. Obviously, his circumstances are not much rejoicing over. He's in prison. He says, rejoice in what? In the Lord, right? Our cause for joy, our source of joy, is God's ever-love, never-failing love, which occurs, of course, regardless of circumstances. So he says, the source of your joy is the fact that God never ceases to love you and has died for your sins and has a place for you in heaven. So our joy is never in our circumstances. You might be happy with your circumstances, but your joy is in your relationship with Jesus Christ, which never changes. That's internal and eternal. Our circumstances are very much external and temporal. Circumstances come and circumstances go, but the love of Jesus stays forever and ever. And Paul says, I'm going to be repeating some of the same stuff that I've talked about before, but guess what? You need to hear it. Right? We all need to hear it. You know, about 80% of what we talk about in church, you already know. You already know. You may know 90%. But we need to be reminded every seven days of what the truth is because we're being hit with programming from the world 24-7 and it can dilute and we can forget. We can lose track of it. So we come back to the straight edge of truth, which is the Word of God found in the Bible. We do that every seven days. And Paul says, the repetition's good. And I agree with that. He starts with a couple of admonitions. He says, beware of the dogs. Now, for those of you that... Um, loved 101 Dalmatians. We're not talking about those kind of dogs, right? Uh, in America, we treat dogs like family. In the first century, dogs were scavengers. They were feral, they were filthy, and they were not friendly. And the Jews often called Gentiles dogs. Not Obviously, that was their opinion of them. The church at Philippi is under attack by a group of people called the Judaizers. The Judaizers are Jews, And they falsely teach that in order to be saved, yes, the death of Christ is fine. Yes, grace is fine. But you also have to be circumcised and obey the Mosaic law. So really, in order to go to heaven, you have to be a Jew first, then a Christian, and then you put the two together, faith in Christ, plus human works, then you get to go to heaven. And they opposed Paul routinely. They followed him from city to city to city to city. And attacking his teaching, tried to persuade people that grace through faith alone was not sufficient to save you. So they were really enemies of the cross and leading people away from grace and into hell. So like feral dogs, they were always barking and nipping at Paul's heels. And anytime you see Paul persecuted, oftentimes it's his Jewish legalistic former friends who follow him from city to city and incite riots against him because he obviously is attacking the Jewish religion of salvation by works, only keeping the Mosaic law. And Paul said, no, it is grace through faith in Christ alone. Paul calls them evil workers. They actively oppose God's plan of salvation by faith. And God views all human effort to earn salvation as filthy rags. You should throw them in the garbage pile. See, all our good works that we do to try and earn favor with God are sinful because we're sinful. 
When people claim that their good works can earn God's favor and get them into heaven, and by the way, that's the standard line. When you talk to a friend who doesn't know Jesus and you say, why should God let you into his heaven? They say, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a good person. I, I, I do good things. I mean, you know, I pay my taxes. Not voluntarily, of course, but I pay my taxes. So I'm a good citizen. And, you know, I didn't cut that person off, and, 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 uh, even though I was really angry with them at the stop sign. So they list these things that they do that are, are good. Here's the problem. When people claim that their own human good works can earn God's favor, they are saying that God's holy character can be compromised. They say, God will tolerate my sin. That's what they're saying. Heaven will allow me in even though I'm a sinner because God will compromise his holy standards, and that's an insult. What they really are saying is God's going to owe me salvation because of all the good that I do. And I say, well, by what standard is that? Well, it's by a human standard. It's not by God's standard. God's standard is 100% perfection. Of course, no one meets that. So claiming that your good works can impress God compromises God's holiness. It's really an insult. It's really an insult to holy God because God has always hated wickedness, especially wickedness dressed up like self-righteousness. That's why he was always on to the Pharisees because they were convinced that their good deeds were good enough for God. He calls them members of the false circumcision. It literally translates mutilators of the flesh. So the Jews believed that physical circumcision in itself was the means of a right relationship with God. If you got physically circumcised, it was almost like the Catholic Roman Catholic Church who believes that if you're baptized as an infant, you're saved. They conflate those two. Baptized into the church means salvation. Baptism is a symbol, buried with Christ, raised and walk in newness of life. Circumcision was a symbol of a relationship with God. It wasn't the substance, it was a symbol. God commanded Abraham, you circumcise your children and your descendants, a symbol of my relationship with you, but it's not the relationship. It's a symbol of the relationship. So Paul says, literally, you Judaizers are mutilating the gospel in the same way that you mutilate the flesh in order to have a right relationship with God. He's pretty graphic here. And he says, we who follow Christ, we're of the true circumcision. That, that word literally means we have placed our faith in Christ and not our own self-righteousness. The Bible often talks about your heart being circumcised, not your flesh being circumcised, in the sense that circumcision is a cutting away, it's a separating. And we're supposed to be separated from sin. So a circumcised heart is a heart that is separated from sin. And it's the metaphor that he's using here, being set apart for God. He says, those who follow Christ worship in the Spirit of God. Obviously, none of us can come into God's presence without the Holy Spirit prompting us to do that and the blood of Christ which cleanses us. And he says, we glory or boast in Jesus Christ. So people who trust in their own good works, and you'll see them, the world is filled with them. When you ask them how they can get into heaven, they will boast about their own good works. Well, I do this, at least I don't do that you know, those really evil people that deserve hell, not me. They do all this stuff, and at least I don't do that, so therefore I should get into heaven. They're boasting about their own good works. Paul says, people who follow Jesus boast in who? They boast in Jesus Christ. Their pride, their joy, their exaltation should be in Christ and not themselves. 
and they put no confidence in the flesh. Now, confidence, this word means trust and faith. And our world is filled with people that are utterly confident in their own opinions. And they will be glad to share them with you, even if you don't ask. Right? I mean, they will assume that you need to know what they think. You know people like this, right? Are you our people like this? I mean, yeah, okay. I just want to make sure you're awake, make sure I'm talking to the right crowd at that point in time. So when you're confident in something, you're pretty, you're, you believe you have an accurate understanding of the situation. And Paul says, I used to be extremely confident in how to have a right, right relationship with God. I mean, I did the checklist, God's checklist that he thought he had. Man, I kept this thing to the gnat's eye teeth. Paul had a couple things right. One, he understood that a right relationship with God is the most important thing in all of life. He understood that being right with God is the most important thing. What he had wrong was how to obtain that right relationship, right? The Judaizer said, you got to be circumcised to obey the Mosaic law. And Paul says, I have been there, done that. As a matter of fact, I've been there, done that far more than any of you guys. He said, let me list you my religious credentials. That if any list of religious credentials ought to have won me favor with God, I've got them far more than you do, as a matter of fact. And he could refute the Judaizers because he himself was a Jew. So he now he's going to list six, seven, eight things that he says, here's the things that you people are putting your faith in to make you right with God. I've done them all, and I don't trust any of them because none of them are effective in winning favor with God. He says, number one, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, for a Jew, that was a very big deal because it had been commanded by God, right? Through Moses on Mount Sinai, circumcised on the eighth day. What, Jew, what Paul is really saying is, look, I'm not a proselyte. I'm not a convert. I didn't come to the Jewish faith at 21, 36. I was born a Jew. I'm a pure-blood Jew from birth. You can't top that. My parents followed the law exactly. However, problem, ritual can't save you. Number two, he says, I was born in the nation of Israel. And you know, in the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen people. They were chosen by God to represent God on planet Earth to all the nations of the earth. They were selected out of all the nations based on God's sole prerogative, chose Abraham and said, I'm going to form a nation of you, and you're going to be my representatives for the whole planet, your descendants. Paul says, I'm a pure descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the father of faith. Not Ishmael, Isaac. I followed the family of faith. I am a true member of God's covenant people. Problem. Race can't save you either. He says, I'm the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin's a royal tribe. King Saul, the first king of Israel, came out of Benjamin. Mordecai, of the fame of Esther, came out of the tribe of Benjamin. Out of all the tribes of Israel, only two tribes stayed loyal to David during the great almost civil war and the separation of the, the northern and southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. However, status can't save either. He says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm a Hebrew son of Hebrew parents. Hebrew was my native language. I still speak Hebrew. I have not adopted Greek customs. A lot of the 
Jews during that era were Hellenized. They had adopted Greek language, Greek customs. Paul says, I haven't done any of that. I've been faithful to Jewish traditions. Problem. Tradition can't save you either. He says, I'm a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a group of about 6,000, very small number of Jewish males, and they were legalists and separatists. They not only kept the law of God, a law of Moses over the decades, they actually added to God's law. Now, how many commandments did God give to start with? Ten. Only ten. We haven't been able to keep the ten in thousands of years, correct? Well, the Pharisee says, ten's not enough. We need some more. So by the time they got done, there were 613 commandments. You think you have trouble with ten? Most of the Jewish people looked at 613 and said, forget about it. Can't no do. But the Pharisees really worked at keeping all 613, and they were proud about it. I mean, if you didn't, you were scum. Very narrow-minded, very legalistic, very radical, very demanding. And they took great pride in this. God says, religion can't save you. Paul says, I'm zealous. My zeal is demonstrated by the fact that I persecuted the church. I love Judaism so much, I'm willing to imprison and kill people who don't agree with it. Wow. See, he believed that Jesus was an imposter. He said, Jesus is just a man, claims to be God, and that was blasphemy. So that was a capital crime. So Paul, before his conversion, said, of course he deserved to die. He claimed to be God, and he was a man, and that's blasphemy, and the Old Testament commanded, you do that, you die. He got what he deserved. He hated anyone who threatened Judaism. Most people in our culture don't take anything that seriously. Paul took his religion seriously. He was willing to kill for it, and he was willing to die for it. However, zeal can't save you. He said, as a matter of fact, in summary, I am blameless according to the Mosaic Law. You can't charge me with any violation or infringement of the law because I've kept them all. Now, he's not claiming moral perfection. He says, I'm legally innocent from any external standpoint. However, God says, Human law-keeping can't save you. So Paul's given you his list of religious credentials. He's told the Judaizers, I've kept all of them better than you have, and they knew that he had, and he said, none of them are going to make me right with God. He's got, I want you to think of a balance sheet. If you're an accountant, Marty understands this. Darren, you guys are accountants. You have a balance sheet, you have assets, and you have liabilities, Correct? An asset is something you own. A liability is something you owe. Assets are good. Liabilities are bad. If you have more liabilities than assets, we call you bankrupt. Right? <laughs> so on the balance sheet of the United States, we have almost $30 trillion of liabilities. Now, even where I come from, that's a rather large number, right? So Paul has this spiritual balance sheet, and he's just given you a list of all the assets. These eight things, he says, I've done this and this and this and this, he says, all the assets. And he said, I'm confident, I was confident that all of those assets will earn me favor with God. As a matter of fact, they'll give me a right relationship with God, and I'll be able to get into heaven. Now, 
That all worked until his value system got radically changed on the day he met Christ on the road to Damascus. And as a result of that reevaluation system, he says some profound things beginning in verse 7. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, he's talking about all those good assets, right, that he did, those works assets, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Here's the principle. On the balance sheet of life, knowing Jesus is priceless and everything else is worthless in comparison. On the balance sheet of life, Knowing Jesus is priceless and everything else is worthless in comparison. Paul says whatever things. He, he was counting on those things to give him a right relationship with God. And the word gain, the word kurdos, it means profit, literally profit. And the word loss, zemia, means loss. It's talking about a business loss. So think business profit and loss here. And he's referring these gains and losses to a spiritual balance sheet, gains and losses, or an income statement, income and expense. He's been sp he spent his entire life working very diligently to build up his spiritual asset sheet. And he kept the law, and he was a Jew, and he did all these things, and he says, all of those things are going to earn me favor with God. And when he met Christ, his value system was turned upside down. He says, everything I thought was an asset is now a liability, Right? I thought I had an asset, turns out I'm spiritually bankrupt. Christ, whom he formerly persecuted, he now embraces and follows. He says, I'm willing to lose everything I formerly valued in exchange for knowing Jesus Christ. Far more valuable. Now, Jesus talked about exchanges in Matthew 16, verse 25. Matthew 16, for those who want to cross-reference that. And Jesus said in Matthew 16, 25, For whoever wishes to save his life, shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What Jesus is really saying is if you clutch the valuables of this life and reject the things that God says are valuable, you're going to lose your soul. However, if you let go of the things of this life and exchange them for Christ, you will gain eternal life. Jesus says, there is nothing more valuable than spending eternity in heaven with Jesus. You believe that? There's nothing more valuable. Your physical body will live on earth here a few decades. Suppose you get 10, 10 decades, 100 years, right? Big deal. Compared to eternity, you know, the book of James says your life is a vapor really a vapor. And at my stage of life, I understand the vapor business, right? Yeah. And golf, you know, we're, pl we're playing the back nine. I mean, we're well into the back nine. I mean, I look in the mirror and I'm saying, I'm well in the back nine. So Jesus said, I gave you all of myself. I laid down my life for you so you could have eternal life. And in exchange, I want you to give me all of who you are, right? Matthew 13, 44. Matthew 13, 44. Jesus is talking. He's giving us a parable, a series of them. 
And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So what he's saying is that when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about salvation. He's talking about knowing Christ. Knowing Christ is like the treasure in the field. And when you find the treasure, you value it so much that you sell everything you have and you buy the field so you can get the treasure, right? That's what the exchange is about. Everything you are in exchange for everything God is. Eternal life with Christ in heaven is worth everything you possess on this planet. And you go, well, that's pretty obvious, Brad. Everything I have here is only temporary. That would be right. And everything in heaven is eternal. Remember the rich young ruler, Matthew 19, this rich young ruler, I mean, he's got everything. He's probably handsome, he's young, which is lovely, right? And he's rich, young and rich, right? He asked Jesus, good teacher, how can I attain eternal life? Well, that's a pretty decent question, right? I mean, I'm not going to be here forever. How do I attain eternal life? And Jesus said, you know what the law says, keep all the commandments. And he says, I've kept them all. Well, you know, he may be rich and young, but he's not wise. Because anybody who says they've kept all the commandments, but he kept them all as far as human standards. He didn't keep them according to God's standards, but he kept them according to human standards. And Jesus knew his heart. And Jesus knew he did not love his neighbor as himself. And he says, Jesus says, if you want to obtain eternal life, here's what you do. Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and come and follow me. And what does it say? And it says, he went away sorrowing because he owned many possessions. He refused to sell his possessions to give to the poor because he valued his earthly possessions more than eternal life. So he kept his earthly possessions and lost his eternal soul. That's a bad trade, would you say? We have a culture that's doing that all the time. They're clutching the things of this life and devaluing the things that last forever. Jesus said, I will save your soul, but you must give up everything that you are trusting in to make you right with God except me. I am the only one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, right? Paul says, look, it's real simple. For the sake of Christ, for the sake of my eternal soul, I'll give up everything. No problem. Because eternal life is the prize. There is nothing more valuable than that. Jim Elliott, a missionary, once said a profound line, and I think this would be good to memorize. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in exchange for what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. That's the stuff on earth. You're not going to keep this stuff. It's going bye-bye. And if it didn't go bye-bye, you're going bye-bye, right? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in exchange for what he cannot lose. Jesus said, lay up treasures in heaven. Why? Because they're eternal, right? So before Christ met Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul spent his entire life trying to earn a right relationship with God through rigorous law-keeping. And he thought, if I keep these man-made rules, they'll make me acceptable to God. And that is self-righteousness, which believes I can earn heaven on my terms. 
Anytime someone says to you, well, I've been a good person, they're saying, I'm going to dictate my entry terms into heaven based on my terms. Guess what? God does not do business on your terms. He does business on his terms, right? He met Christ, and he has a brand new value system. He sees all his assets as liabilities. He sees his good works as trash. You know, if you're starving to death, and the only food that's available to you is out of a garbage can, you will dig through that garbage can. I promise you will. I've seen people do it, and you will too. However, if you're sitting down to a seven-course banquet, you throw the leftovers into the garbage can. You don't go dig the leftovers out of it. Depends on your perspective, right? Robert Oppenheimer was the father of the United States Atomic Bomb Project. He was a brilliant physicist, one of the brightest guys in the world on an IQ basis. And in the, he supervised from 43 to 45, 1932 years, he supervised 4,500 workers. And they spent two years trying to figure out how to split the atom under controlled circumstances. They got it right. And when he viewed the first bomb detonation in Los Alamos, New Mexico, and he saw the destructive power, his life went through a complete reevaluation. And he said, quote, I am become death. Because he understood that what he had created was going to kill lots and lots of people. Two months later, he resigned his position. And he spent the rest of his life trying to put the genie of atomic weaponry back in the bottle. Obviously, you can't do that. Sometimes it takes an explosion in our lives for us to examine our values and determine what's really important. And that explosion in our lives, a lot of time, is painful. Most of the time, we don't reevaluate our life when everything's going well, correct? When everything's going well, we think we're, we're brilliant. I mean, all this going well stuff is because I am so smart. But when things are going really, really badly and we're suffering or we have situations we can't control, loved ones, health issues, financial, that's when we say, maybe it's time to reevaluate stuff. I need to kind of take a look at where things are going because my life is a train wreck for whatever reason. On the road to Damascus, Christ appears to Paul in glory and he asks them a very good question. He says, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Good, good question. And Paul, Saul, answers, I think, brilliant answer, who are you? Who am I talking to? I mean, I know this is a divine being, but who am I? And the voice of heaven says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, this absolutely shattered his life. He thought Jesus was a fraud. He thought Jesus was an imposter. He thought Jesus was just a man who claimed to be God. He thought God was pleased when he would persecute and kill Christians because they were blasphemers. He thought, I'm on God's side. Turns out he's been at war with God, which completely led to a re radical reevaluation of his life. And he gives us a little list of that, or, or, or a summary statement of that in verse 8 to repeat. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, this word surpassing value, 
It, it means supreme excellency. It means all-encompassing greatness. It means beyond compare. He says nothing in life is better than knowing Jesus. And most of us go, yeah, uh, I agree with that. But we really don't understand it. Because we forget what our life was like before we met Christ. Paul didn't have any problem remembering what his life before he met Christ, right? Jesus said in Matthew 13, 45, another parable, he said, the kingdom of heaven, salvation, is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. This, this individual was buying pearls, and he had a good eye for pearls. Verse 46, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold everything he had and bought that pearl. Now, this merchant was obviously seeking value, and when he found the greatest value, he traded everything in his life for that pearl. He was willing to exchange everything he currently had for something he valued more. Now, obviously, knowing Christ is the pearl of great price. The greatest value in all of life is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's been stated throughout Scripture. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6 when he said in Matthew or Mark 12, 30, what's the greatest commandment? Some a lawyer came to him and says, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Whatever you value more than your relationship with God is an idol. It's a substitute because it never is God himself. It's something other than God. See, God gave us this wonderful world, and he gave us the ability to enjoy it. He gave us all things to enjoy, but only one God to worship. Don't ever confuse enjoying God's world with worshiping God's world. And I've met people that say, well, the whole world is evil. You should have nothing to do with it. You should lock yourself in a monastery, pray eight hours a day, blah, 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 blah. That's not what God says. God says, I gave you the whole world so you can enjoy it. But there's a big, big, big difference between enjoying his creation as he's given us and praising him for it and then falling down and worship his creation and rejecting him. So we enjoy the creation. We worship the creator. We fall into sin when we value God's gifts more than himself. And you know this, the real value of a birthday gift, think about your birthday. I don't know if you still do birthdays or not. You may be thinking, nah, I don't need to do any more of those. We went to one last night for a 40-year-old, and I said, yeah, it's easy for you to talk, you're 40. You can afford to have a birthday, you know? We're, we're trying not to count at this stage of life. So the value of a birthday gift is not the gift the real value is your relationship with the giver, right? You give a gift, why? To express your esteem for the person you're giving the gift to. So the person who receives the gift, the gift is a reflection of the relationship. You give a gift because you esteem that person, esteem the relationship. It's the same thing here. It's not that you shouldn't enjoy God's gifts, but we should worship the giver of the gift. That's the whole point. And Paul says, I count everything to be lost. What he's talking about is anything you think you can do in your own strength to earn God's favor. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Now, we don't always raise our children like that or our grandchildren. I mean, we're pretty conditional. They do good things, they go, 
love you, man. You're just doing the right stuff. You know, it's great. And if they don't, like, you're going to suffer for that, dude. I mean, you know, you broke my will, broke my way. God doesn't operate that way. He disciplines us for sin, but it doesn't change his love for us. The reality is, Paul says, I'm not only willing to lose all things, I've lost them. He's in prison. He's lost his freedom. He's lost his livelihood. He's lost his health. He lost all his legalistic good deeds, which were probably not bad. He lost the ability to travel, to visit the churches. None of those things mattered to him. He called all his good deeds rubbish. Your translation may say dung, manure, garbage, filth, trash, that which is detestable or repulsive. He says, compared to Christ, anything that you are trusting in to earn favor with God is filth, trash, it's like a dirty baby diaper, right? He'd weighed all the things in life, and compared to Christ, on the balanced scale of life, you put Christ on one side, you put all the stuff you could possibly value on the other side, he said, everything but Christ is worthless compared to the supreme value of my love relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse 9. He said, I want to be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Here's the principle. Genuine righteousness is gifted by God through faith, not earned by man through works. Genuine righteousness is gifted by God through faith, not earned by man through works. And he says, I may be found in him. Paul uses this term, in Christ, 164 times in the New Testament, 13 epistles. It's, it's a huge part of his uh, orientation, spiritual orientation. What he's saying is our relationship with Christ is so intimate. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us, and we are in Christ, in his body, in his family. We're literally a part of him. It's hard to know where Christ ends and we begin. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it is not I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So he's talking about Christ being in us and us in him. That's, that's the intimate relationship. And he says, my own righteousness is worthless. And he describes it as righteousness, a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Now, this word righteousness means doing right or right standing. We use the word right relationship. Right standing means God accepts you. God accepts you. That's the whole point. It's God's definition of right that counts, not our definition. One definition of religion is religion is people reaching up and seeking to be right with God on the basis of their own efforts, according to their own definition. That's what the world says is the way to get to God. That's what Satan says as well. God's standard of right is 100% moral perfection. And no one meets that, correct? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul says, I don't want that self-righteousness. I have been under the bondage and the yoke and the slavery of performance-based religion, legalism, for decades. I want the righteousness which comes from God. I want God's righteousness, not my righteousness. Christianity is completely unique in all the world's religions. Christianity alone has a God who takes the initiative, 
to reach down to have a relationship with humanity. Every other religion says, you got to reach up to God and strive and sacrifice and appease this God who doesn't like you and blah, blah, blah. Christianity is the only religion where God loves his people and reaches down to them. And when God declares you not guilty based on Christ's payment of your sin debt, he takes that sin debt away and he gives you Christ's righteousness. Think of this as a financial exchange. I'm going to go back to the assets and liabilities. The asset of Christ is his righteousness. He's perfectly right, perfectly just, perfectly holy, perfectly in relationship with God. Our sin is a liability. It's a debt. At salvation, God takes Christ's righteousness and puts it in your asset column. He's not interested in your assets, right? All your good deeds, all the law-keeping. He said, none of that matters. I'm going to put Christ's asset in your asset column, and I'm going to take your sin debt and put that on Christ's balance sheet. This is the greatest exchange in all of the universe. You get Christ's righteousness for free by faith, and at salvation, he takes your sin and puts it on Christ. Scripture says, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Christ's righteousness, and he says, I see you as in Christ, perfectly righteous. That's what Paul says I want. I want God's righteousness. I don't want my righteousness. We were spiritually bankrupt, and now in Christ we're infinitely wealthy because of all the riches of Jesus Christ. So what's beautiful about Christianity is what God demands from us, moral righteousness, right? He says, be holy like I'm holy. He gives it to us. What he demands from us, he gives to us. He says, I want you to be perfectly holy, and I'm going to give you the righteousness of Christ to make it happen. Only God. Only God. Those righteousness is not accessed by works, but only by faith. We just trust in and surrender to Jesus Christ, believing that Christ died for our sins and surrendering our life to him. Verse 10 is really the heartbeat of this. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There's four key things here. When we know Christ personally, we experience his life-giving power, his partnership in our pain, his passion for the lost, and his promise of heaven. You may have trouble remembering that. We'll email that to you. When we know Christ personally, we experience his life-giving power, his partnership in our pain, his passion for the lost, and his promise of heaven. Now this word know, the Greek word is gnosis. It means to know experientially. It's not an academic head knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge, it's personal involvement. It's a transcendent, experientially intimate communion with Christ. The Hebrew word for that is yadha, Y-A-D-H-A, yadha. And that is you know in the sense of a union of love or a bond of love. It says Adam knew Eve, his wife. He did not read an academic dissertation about Eve. He knew her intimately, sexually, emotionally, spiritually. They had a bond of love together. It says the two shall become one, right? That is a, a, it's way beyond sex. It includes that, but it's a, 
It is a spiritual, emotional, intellectual oneness that God does. And Paul says that's a picture of the oneness between Jesus and the believer, right? It's not academic knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. It's not knowing about someone. It's knowing them because you interact with them. You live with them. You intimately know them. And he says, I want to know Christ Jesus my Lord. He's talking about a supernatural union, intimate knowledge with Christ, a loving and personal knowledge. Jesus defined eternal life in John 17, 3. He says, this is eternal life, that you might know God. That it may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So if you want to know God, how do you know God? Through Christ. Salvation is the relationship through which you know Christ, and through Christ you have a relationship with the Father. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says, so I want to know him. The intimate, personal, experiential knowledge of Christ was one of his craving points. He wanted this. I said, I also want to know the power of his resurrection. The greatest demonstration of divine power was his resurrection from the dead. He has power over death, demons, physical domains, spiritual domains. Power is the word dunamis. Dunamis is where we get the word dynamite or dynamo. So this was supernatural power. Paul says, I want Christ's power. Why? I need Christ's power to resist sin. I need Christ's power to serve him. I need Christ's power to overcome temptation. I need Christ's power for boldness of witnessing. I need Christ's power for enduring trials. Do you need Christ's power today? Of course you do. You're going to face some situations, and our big problem is we try and do it on our own power, and we fall on our face, and we're frustrated. We need his power. Paul says, I not only want an intimate relationship with him, I want his power because without him I can do nothing. He also says, I want the fellowship of his sufferings. I used to trip on this, fall on my face on this. I'm going, okay, I'm, I'm okay with intimate love. I'm okay with power, but suffering. Oof, oof, you know. He says, I want a partnership with Christ in my suffering. I want to share, I want someone to share my suffering. There's an old hymn that says what? No one understands like Jesus. He's a friend beyond compare. Hebrews 4 says that because Jesus suffered, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. The truth is, most of us are closest to Christ when? When we're suffering. That's when we have intimacy most of the time. Jesus is always with us, but most of the time we're not paying attention until we're in pain, and all of a sudden we're paying attention, right? He says, I want to be conformed to his death. Jesus died to redeem sinners, and Paul said, I'm trading my whole life for the gospel. Now, he's not talking about being a martyr necessarily, but we lay down our life one day at a time. He said, lay down your life for the gospel. Lay down your life for Jesus. Lay down your life for sinners in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's the end point. John MacArthur says that the literal translation reads, I want to attain the out-resurrection from among the corpses. Pretty direct. I want to attain the out-resurrection from among the corpses. Jesus rose from the dead, and he was given what? An incorruptible body. After the resurrection, I mean, he'd go through doors, he'd appear inside locked rooms and everything else. And we're going to be given a body like that. And when I look in the mirror, I realize I desperately need a body like that for that environment. We have a body that's designed for terrestrial earth. Your body is designed to survive on this planet. 
the body you currently have will not survive in the next life. It's not meant to design in the next life. People in heaven get an incorruptible body, and people in hell get a body that will survive hell. You can't die in hell. You have a body that will never die. You just suffer forever. In heaven, you have a body that will never die, and you will experience the joys of intimacy with Jesus Christ forever. So Paul says, I want to attain to the resurrection from the dead. He says, I haven't arrived there yet. I haven't arrived to the state of Christ's likeness, but that's my goal, verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it. I've already become perfect. But I press on in order that I may lay hold of that, for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here's the principle. A craving for Christ-likeness compels us to run the race of faith with energy and endurance. A craving for Christ-likeness compels us to run the race of faith with energy and endurance. Paul is very much saying, I have not arrived. I'm still on the path. He says, I haven't obtained it. Obtain means to seize or to grasp, to acquire. He says, I'm not yet become perfect. I'm not yet completely like Christ. By the way, that is the whole point of your Christian life. That's the end point. To become like Christ. That's the point. And we should have a state of sanctified dissatisfaction with our current state of spiritual maturity. If you're satisfied where you are spiritually right now, you know something, you won't run, you'll sit. And the church is filled with people that are content with their current state of spiritual satisfaction because they compare themselves with others and they say, I'm doing fine compared to them. And Paul says, no, 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 you compare yourself with Christ. That is your model. That's your endpoint. That's the template. And it's never okay to stop growing closer to Jesus. It is never okay to stop growing closer to Jesus. You should hunger after that. We have a divine hunger. He says, I press on. And this is a very graphic word picture. Pressing on is a picture of a hunter chasing down their prey at close quarters with intensity and focus. It's also the picture of a runner straining towards the finish line with every ounce of energy. It's also the picture of a soldier. I don't know if you saw Ben-Hur, you know that chariot race at the end? Those chariots were pretty unstable. They didn't exactly have airbags. You were really struggling to hang on and hang on to the horses and get them to the finish line. So it's intensity and focus. And he says, I want to lay hold of that. He says, I want to lay hold of that for which I also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So you say, Paul, what's the goal that God saved you for? Why did God save you? Well, he loves you, number one. But he didn't save you for you to stay where you are. He says, I saved you because I want you to grow up. I want less and less sin, more and more Jesus. Less and less sin, more and more Jesus. That's progressive holiness. That's growing in spiritual maturity. The technical word is sanctification. And God works inside us to conform us to Christ. And he says, your job is to work diligently toward that same goal. He says, one thing I do. A famous football coach once said, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. Well, from eternity's point of view, knowing Christ is both everything and the only thing. 
Paul says, knowing Christ is everything, so I'm dedicating my life to only one thing, knowing Christ and making him known. You know, we talked last week about a deep life is always a narrow life. This is focus. If you're going to attain anything worthwhile in life, it takes focus and sacrifice. It will always take sacrifice to accomplish anything. Olympic athletes organize their entire life around what? The race or whatever their competition is. They organize their entire life around one thing. We should organize our entire life around knowing Christ and becoming like him. That's the point of the Christian life, becoming like Jesus. And Paul says that requires two things, one negative, one positive. He says, forget what lies behind. Forget what lies behind. Satchel Paige, the baseball pitcher, once said, don't look back. Something might be gaining on you, right? When you're in a race, if you look back, it breaks your concentration, someone can pass you. Now, Satan wants us to look back because he wants to paralyze us with guilt over our past mistakes, our past sins. The reality is your past, present, and future sins have already been paid for. All of them already paid for. What sin you're going to commit this afternoon, paid for. The sin you did 20 years ago, paid for. Paul says, don't look back. Learn from the past, but don't live in the past. When you drive a car, you glance at the rearview mirror. You don't gaze at the rearview mirror. You gaze forward because that's where you're going. He says, reach forward to what lies ahead. And this reaching forward has the idea of stretching a muscle to the limit. It's like a runner driving toward the goal with every ounce of their energy focused like a laser on the finish line. What would motivate you to be willing to do only one thing? To stretch every muscle. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's heaven. That's seeing Jesus face to face. That's the goal. That's the prize. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God and has not appeared as yet what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, or we shall see him just as he is. The whole point of human existence is to have an intimate personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, beginning right now and lasting through all eternity. Don't waste your life on anything less than Christ-likeness. Okay, let's summarize, then we'll do prayer and praise. Point one, God hates self-righteousness because proud people believe that a right relationship with God can be purchased by human effort. Point two, on the balance sheet of life, knowing Christ is priceless, everything else is worthless in comparison. Point three, genuine righteousness is gifted by God through faith, not earned by man through works. Number four, when we know Christ personally, we experience his life-giving power, his partnership in our pain, his passion for the lost, and his promise of heaven. And last, a craving for Christ-likeness compels us to run the race of faith with energy and endurance. That's a lot from the Holy Spirit to us today from his precious word. I love you all. Don't forget, now that you know, do. 
Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.